The practice that we do here, the practice of mindfulness, is based on the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Discourses, this big fat brown book here, are usually translated as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And it begins with a very simple awareness of the breath and the body. And if you can remember all those many weeks ago, whether it's five weeks or whatever the number is more than that, the three-month retreat, uh, when Joseph gave those breath meditation instructions, recognizing whether you're breathing in long or short, uh, tranquilizing the body, calming the body, using the breath, they, those instructions are taken directly from that sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta. It goes on from the breath to include experiences of the body and its elemental nature, the postures of the body, Carol spoke a bit last night about clear comprehension, the recognition of the body, our movements in all kinds of activities, and develops from there to many practices that we don't teach. Death contemplations are parts of the body um, to include Vedana, feeling tone, and mindfulness of citta, mind states, and then goes on to uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's not one that we've talked a lot about and often don't talk a lot about on retreat. So I wanted to talk about it tonight because in some ways it's really the culmination of these series of practices. And to uh, understand it really gives a great context for what we're doing here. Each of the foundations are getting progressively more subtle, beginning with the obvious recognition of, my, of body, and the breath coming in and out, that very simple object, feeling tone, more subtle again, and then awareness of mind, getting, again, more subtle. And there's also an overlap of the fourth foundation to the other foundations, but it is it, part of that um, progression of more and more, you could say, complex, subtle, um, inclusive practices. In the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind, mind states, um, we're asked to be aware of what the contents of the mind and whether, say, aversion is present or not present, desire is present or not present, and also including experiences of mind that we might have in meditation, whether the mind is concentrated or distracted, whether it's um, in various states of, of, of um, deep concentration. Here we're also asked to look at objects of mind, but it's a little bit different. We're asked to look at the context in which these experiences are arising. So in the third foundation, we're just asked to be aware of what's in the mind and whether experiences are there, and particularly whether they're also not there. This is uh, just as important. In the fourth foundation, it's a contextual understanding that is the practice. And what the focus is again and again is to look directly at our experience and see how everything is conditioned. And once we start to see that, we see that there's the possibility for creating beneficial conditions, changing the conditions so that we might experience more wholesome states of mind, more purifying states of mind, and the possibility of 
diminishing or letting go of difficult or tormenting states of mind, and always pointing towards a possibility of freedom, of actually literally turning the mind towards freedom. This is the direction of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But because it's so complex, it's very difficult to sit here and give instructions for it. I've tried doing it, and believe me, it's complicated. I wouldn't do it on a retreat like this. Um, there's so much to it. But what I want to talk about tonight is really the underlying processes that are described in this foundation so that you'll actually recognize them in your practice and possibly see that you're already doing them. But just knowing them will actually give you uh, some context for understanding that. The fourth foundation as a practice actually just very naturally evolves out of refining our awareness, out of this progression through the other foundations. Also, when we're steeped in Dharma principles, steeped in the teachings as we are in a retreat like this, and bringing those two together, this, this set of practices, just kind of naturally unfolds. And it directs us to notice why certain, usually we don't get a, a lot into why things happen. Just notice whether they're there, you know, did you notice it, and that's enough. In the fourth foundation, it's a little more complex. We're actually even looking at the how and why certain experiences happen and how we can engage skillfully with that process. And obviously, this practice, though it's, it's central for us here on intensive retreat, is also very useful for us in our daily life because mind states don't just happen on retreat, obviously. We get caught in defilements and torments of mind uh, at any time in our life. So we can really take this practice back home with us and use it skillfully. It's said that any of the four foundations, if one practiced them fully, could lead to liberation. And I really believe that. But you can see how the other foundations, ha uh, there are other qualities that get developed out of practicing them. Obviously, just mindfulness gets developed out of being aware of the body and the different states of mind. Um, we develop calm and concentration. There's a certain amount of objectivity that this practice develops. All of these different things are developed in the other foundations. The fourth foundation builds on those experiences and those developmental practices, but is always turning the mind towards liberation, is always looking to where can I find freedom? Where am I getting caught and where can I find freedom? So it, it has a more specific purpose. And I recognize that it's quite a complex teaching. If it feels too much for you, please just drop it. It's not essential to know. We've gotten this far in the retreat without having talked about it. But I think you'll find that um, as we go through the evening that there are ways we have been including these practices because they're very fundamental to what we do. We just haven't named them as such. But not to feel any need to remember what I'm saying or the lists or anything. I'm hoping it's just a if anything, you just take a big picture from this talk tonight. So it's uh, the foundation is called uh, Dhamma Nupassana, mindfulness of dhammas. And you probably recognize this word, dhamma or dharma in Sanskrit, has many meanings. 
We often translate it as the teachings of the Buddha. It's called the Dhamma. Or the way things are, the truth of things, is also the Dhamma. But another interesting meaning that we don't bring out so often is just that Dhamma means a discrete thing. Everything is a Dhamma. I mean, this is a Dhamma. The glass is a Dhamma. The bell is a Dhamma. So it brings another layer to what this might mean to be mindful of Dhammas. But because of the breadth of the possible translations or interpretations of this word and the complexity of the foundation itself, it's led to a number of varying uh, interpretations of what we're actually meant to do with this practice. And I remember a guy coming home from one three-month course a while ago and saying that at one of the teacher meetings they had a long discussion about this foundation. And after much debate and probably some argumentation, they could agree somewhat on what the intention was. So, you know, again, you don't have to figure this out tonight. But one teacher gave a definition that I really liked. It's very simple. It's seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So it's basically seeing the truth in our experiences, in everything, both the physical objects but also the mental experiences, seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So that's what it's asking us to do. In this section, there's a, a number of lists, a very old, familiar list that we're asked to contemplate. And with, it, with each one, there's a slightly different practice that the Buddha recommends doing. We're asked to contemplate mind objects in terms of the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense spaces, and then the seven factors of enlightenment, and then the four noble truths. A really interesting set of lists that he's picked out here. As I said, it developed out of the earlier foundations, and you can probably already see where there might be some similarities or overlaps. We're mindful, actually, of the same things, but the difference here is what we do with the experience. It's asking us not just to be mindful of it, but to put it in a context where we gain some understanding or insight and is actually inviting us to use thought wisely, to use investigation wisely, to reflect a little. And this is actually a skill that we all need to learn as meditators, how to use thought wisely, what is wise reflection, how to turn our inquiring mind towards our experience and come to some new understanding of it and to distinguish when it's wandered off into thinking about things or um, trying to figure out in a very intellectual way. This is not what is meant by wise reflection. Wise reflection meets our experience very directly, has a conceptual understanding of it, but doesn't get lost in discursive thought. It's not a washing machine where it's just getting swilled around and around and around without a rinse cycle. It's really very immediate and connected to experience. And often in this practice, we are always talking about being in the present moment, as though we should be amnesiacs and just forget everything that happened before and never think about the future. All there is is this present moment. There's a story I tell in another talk about a man who was brain damaged and had That was his literal experience. All he knew was this present moment. It was a scary place to be, believe me, without any reference points of past or future. 
So we have to do this wisely when we talk about being in the present moment. It isn't about forgetting past and future completely. I mean, it can happen in a moment that there's that powerful dropping in, but most of the time there are these reference points. The fourth foundation actually encourages us to do this wisely. And so it's a three moment experience. So of course there is the present moment because that's where everything happens. And we wake up, we recognize what's happening in this present moment. But then we look and notice what was happening in the previous moment. What were the conditions that were existing then that led us to this moment? And then out of that, we can make a wise choice, a skillful response. And then we get to the next moment, the future moment, which then becomes the present moment, but we're looking at it from this moment. Um, and we see what are the results. So it's this little triad of moments. Can happen very quickly, snap, 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 or it can be over a longer period of time. But this framework of the three moments is, is really helpful in our practice and specifically with this fourth foundation of mindfulness. So I'll just go through the list and highlight, again, the processes that we're um, encouraged to practice with and just take usually one of each to give a, an idea of what this might look like. The first list, as I said, is the five hindrances. Very familiar. The f it begins, the practice that we're asked to do, begins just like it is in the third foundation of mindfulness, where we're just asked to be aware of the presence or absence of a hindrance. And again, just even in this sentence, it's, there's a very important teaching. Presence, we know that it's there. Absence, we know that it's not there. Really important to keep coming back to that. We're so often entangled in what's wrong with our experience, fighting or resisting or working with or whatever, especially the hindrances, but when they diminish or cease, we don't recognize it. We're just on to the next difficulty or the next thing that we're lost in. It's such a great teaching to remember the absence of something, especially for something that was difficult. And the other thing that's important about this framework of recognizing the presence or the absence of a hindrance, it's just its non-judgmental nature. It's not, oh, it's bad, it's wrong, you shouldn't have these hindrances. It's just, are they present or not present? Again, a really skillful pointing. But then it gets a little more complicated. And what we're asked to do is understand why the hindrance, the particular hindrance has come about what are the circumstances or conditions, and then why it might cease, what would lead it to end. So the, the phrase, it begins with the practitioner recognizes, say for the first hindrance, there is sensual desire present in me, or there is no sensual desire. But then it goes on, and this is from the sutta. The practitioner understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. Now, it sounds a little complicated, but if you've heard a lot of Dharma talks, you might recognize the process that's at work there, which we call the Four Wise Efforts. It's one of the path eightfold, Noble Eightfold Path factors, and they're the efforts to um, avoid or abandon 
unskillful or unwholesome states of mind and to cultivate and nourish wholesome states of mind. And this lens of the four wise efforts is woven throughout the practices of the fourth foundation. So when it's a, a difficult state of mind like a hindrance, we're working with avoiding and abandoning. When they're wholesome ones like the seven uh, factors of enlightenment, we're working with cultivating and nourishing. But here it's knowing how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire. And it's a kind of a complicated way of saying, how, do you, how does desire happen? What are the conditions that allow desire to arise? Desire arising isn't just a random event. It's not like someone from outer space shoots it into you or whatever. There are conditions that bring it to be, like any conditioned experience. We're asked to notice what that is. And through that noticing, learn to work skillfully with that potential. So, you know, through avoiding, if you know that um, you're likely to have a, a, a desire attack about a certain sight or sound, avoidance is sometimes skillful. You don't walk, if you're on eight precepts, I think I said this the other night, helpful not to walk through the dining room at tea time when the food is laid out. Or if you're really determined just to have one cookie after lunch, you leave before you know you see that pile still there and there's a temptation to take another one. It's just as simple and direct as that. And then how, how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire. How does sensual desire diminish in one? What are the conditions that allow that to happen? But also what's important about this practice is recognizing these movements of mind as hindrances. So recognizing that desire is present is practicing the third foundation. Recognizing that desire is present and it's a hindrance to clear seeing, to ease of mind, to contentment, is practicing the fourth foundation. And then, of course, going on to understanding how desire came to arise in the moment and what it is you can do to work with it skillfully to have it diminish or cease is also practicing the fourth foundation. And you might just try in your practice to see what labeling something as a hindrance as opposed to just as the hindrance itself. So we often recognize you know, restlessness or sleepiness, commonly um, part of our practice to, to label our experience in that way. But to add, and it's a hindrance, for me it's like labeling Vedana the pleasant or unpleasant of experience, kind of shines this bright light on the experience. And I go, oh, that's why I felt caught or confused or lost or distracted. It's a hindrance. And it just gives me a bit more motivation to actually work directly with the experience. So just a, a simple example. I, I got some news a little while ago that was disturbing to me that was, you know, and a whole range of emotions came up, frustration, some anger or irritation, and I went to meditate. And as I sat down, you know, aware very much of the story in the mind still reverberating from this news, but especially felt this, the sensations of the body, a lot of contraction, some vibration, some stiffness in the body. And as I became aware of this experience in all the uh, different manifestations, 
just had the thought, well, what would happen if I deliberately relaxed the body, deliberately tried to soften this tension, this tightness. And as I worked with that, I could see that as I softened the body, the thoughts tended to diminish, that the con very contraction of the body that I was holding on to kept fueling the thoughts of anger and irritation. And as I relaxed the body, the thoughts tended to diminish, the thoughts of aversion. And then as th th that diminished, the thoughts would still come, but they weren't as impactful because the body wasn't holding it. I began to work with the thoughts and notice that if I let the thoughts come, the body would respond. Not as much, but it would still respond. But if I turned my attention to the thoughts and really looked at them, and have you, you've probably all had this experience where when they're just in your mind, they're so believable, and it's like you can fuel them up and pump the bellows and really get them going. But you recognize that if you actually had to say them out loud to someone, they would seem kind of ridiculous or foolish, that they really didn't have any weight to them. And you know, we can have this experience over and over again where in the, in the booming canyons of our mind, these things loom very large. And if you had to turn around and say, this is what I'm thinking about, it would just kind of shrivel up in, in the daylight. I mean, it, it's kind of ridiculous. So I, I really use that um, example or imagery of having to say it to someone, what I was so angry about. And I realized I couldn't get behind it in the same way I could when I just kept playing it out in my mind. So in this example, just a, a few things that I saw is the conditioned uh, arising or the, the supportive conditions for the aversion. One was the contraction in the body, but two was definitely believing the thoughts, getting behind them, having a sense of identity around them. When I could change those conditions, the aversion just very naturally began to subside and let go. And I could notice just more of a sense of ease, more of a sense of acceptance of the situation. Another common experience is sleepiness. You know, we often say, oh, just in the beginning of the retreat, you'll be sleepy. But I mean, how many of you were sleepy yesterday? <laughs> Here we are, you know, after three months. It still happens. Being willing to work with this skillfully, I think it's helpful to recognize that there are actually three main types of sleepiness. There's a sleepiness, just a regular tiredness of mind and body that is more with us at the beginning of the retreat, but can happen at any time if we haven't had a good night's sleep or we've gotten up particularly early or stayed up late. Then there's sinking mind, which is just when some, it's like someone turns the lights out. You're meditating along quite happily and boom, just gone. That's when there's an imbalance of energy and concentration. And then there can be sleepiness or dullness when we're actually in a state of resistance or denial about experience. We need to understand which kind of sleepiness we're experiencing to be able to work with it skillfully. So we need to understand the supportive conditions for the sleepiness. This would be practicing the fourth foundation. And then as we apply the antidote, seeing what happens next. Of the different sleepinesses, different experiences might arise. The sinking mind one, when you bring a little more energy in, often find there's a lot of concentration and ease. If there's been denial, we might uncover something that we hadn't been willing to look at. So we stay present as these different experiences unfold. And then a doubt as a hindrance. 
as we've said before, really the trickiest one to work with because it undermines everything that we're um, experiencing, doesn't let us trust our experience. And it's really important to recognize because it's a form of delusion, but obviously the problem with delusion is we don't know that we're deluded, we don't know that we're lost in doubt. Just to recognize this stream of tumbling thoughts in the mind that have a lot of questioning or confusion um, that we really feel lost in, to step back a bit and go, doubt. Oh, this is doubt. And then to say, and it's a hindrance. Again, for me, it just really releases some sense of stuckness, some sense of lostness in this experience. And to literally or deliberately look for or contemplate, bring into your experience, what are the things that would diminish doubt? And obviously faith or trust or confidence are the antidotes for doubt. Sometimes we question the doubt. You know, are these, can I know that these thoughts are true? Is, what is the reality that I'm believing in right now? What story am I believing in now? And is it actually helpful for me to believe these, these stories? All of these are working in the level of the fourth foundation. Because when we're in doubt and we don't recognize it, we think there's something wrong with us or something wrong with the outer situation. When we recognize it as doubt, that whole constellation can just vanish. It's amazing to experience it. And we come back into the present moment of experience. So just some examples that you may connect with as practices you've already done and they're fourth foundation kinds of practices. The next in the list is the aggregates, the khandhas. Guy has spoken quite a bit about these five components of experience that we can fit any aspect of our experience into a form, feeling and feeling tone, um, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. I'm not going to go into a lot about them because uh, Guy has talked about them, but to talk about the practice with these is to recognize all five of them, say material, form, feeling, etc., to recognize its origin and its disappearance. So for the five aggregates, we're particularly asked to look at their arising and their passing. This is the practice with the five aggregates. And as we've said, within the five aggregates, we can include all of our experience. So it's just a direct pointing to this practice of noticing the beginnings of things, the origin of things, and noticing how they come to cease. The purpose of this, we start to see again the conditioned, selfless, impermanent nature of everything that we experience when we look through this lens arising and passing, material form. It could be over longer time spans um, or very quick time spans, but as we look in this way again and again, we see it's the nature of everything we experience, arising and passing, directed in this way. The next of the practices is the six sense bases. And it's interesting, you have six sense bases, the five physical senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, etc., and the mind. It's interesting how it's just another lens to put on our experience. It's a little simpler and easier for us to relate to as the five, as the five aggregates. 
So this might be a practice that you can actually directly connect to. Sometimes the aggregates can seem a little conceptual. You know, we have to remember a list, but hopefully we all remember, you know, eyes, ears, you know, it's pr pretty basic. And what we do in paying attention to the six sense spaces, I mean, that is our mindfulness practice. It's what we're teaching all along, just different ways of looking at that experience. And as Joseph will often say, it's so simple. There are only ever six things happening. Doesn't it seem more complicated than that, though? But that's actually all there is, these six things in different variations. That's what we're experiencing. But what the fourth foundation asks us to do, the, the sentence is the practitioner understands, and again, I'll just take the first one, understands the I, understands forms, the object of the I, and understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. And now this word fetter, um, I, in researching this, there are some different interpretations of what it might mean, but the simplest and the most direct for us as practitioners are just the kalesas, greed, aversion, delusion. So it's really seeing with all of the different sense stores where we get caught. So again, this is what we do in our practice so much of the time. And what it's important to remember is it's not the eye that's the fetter, it's not the object that's the fetter. It's the fetter that arises dependent on both. It's, it's the aversion or the clinging that's arising. That's the fetter. In the, just, in the Bahia Sutta that I think Guy spoke about, you know, when there's just the scene, let there be just the scene, there's no fetter there. But most of the time, there is. Because what do we do? We, we cling to or we push away what, what is arising at the six sense doors. It's uh, working with the sense door of seeing is a really important place to practice because for most of us, it's the way we get the most information about the world. As a culture, we're very visually oriented. I think if you, you know, look at the animal world, they're much more alive in the other senses. And I would expect that we were, you know, in our forefathers and mothers years ago, much more alive in our other senses too. But this culture is particularly visual. I mean, a lot because we read. We get so much information from that. But just think of all of the ways we get visual information, apart from just seeing what's out there, all of the different media that uh, we can see things through. And so there's a lot of emphasis on seeing and getting entranced. And Obviously, we have this impression that I'm in here looking out through these windows at the world. Can just, if we don't look at what's going on, that's just an assumption we have about our experience. And Sharon Salzberg uh, has this great image that's often how we relate to the visual sight. You remember the cartoon world? And one I particularly remember, I forget the rooster's name, but whenever he would see a beautiful chicken, his eyes would kind of spring out on springs. It was going boing, 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 boing. Don't you feel like that sometimes? You see something, and it's just like your eye, you know, we have these imagery, your eyes bugging out of your head. It's just coming out through the eye door and glomming onto whatever object is present. And so we can get entranced by form. So much emphasis on beauty and, and, and the external appearance of things. And you probably know that Buddhism really tries to get underneath that by some of the earlier practices in the first foundation of the 
32 parts of the body where we literally be uh, mindful of the kidney and the liver and the gallbladder and the blood and the urine and the phlegm. Most of the time we're just entranced by form. The whole travel industry, most of it, most of it is about going and seeing things. You know, this is what we talk about. See, a few years ago, Guy, Carol, and I took a trip to Italy. They were teaching a retreat, and I tagged along, and then we had some holiday time in Tuscany. Tuscany is beautiful. You know, it's just everywhere you look, it seems that what's been added on, the buildings and everything, have actually contributed to the beauty of the world instead of in many places here um, where it's a detriment to the natural world. It actually is beautiful. But after a while, it's like, not another Renaissance masterpiece, you know. <laughs> How many more beautiful churches do we have to go into? It's like, you, you, you just, it's endless. And yet there's this list, you know, that now there's this book that's become really popular, a thousand places you have to see before you die. And people, you know, have taken this up as a project of just, you know, checking off these things. I've got to go there and see this. And as Joseph will often say, is there ever an end to seeing? And if you, but if you have that attitude that there's something out there that's going to be it, there isn't an end. Feel the suffering of that, the, the, the restlessness of that, with that constant urge to see. I see it if, you know, occasionally I pick up in, in waiting rooms or whatever, architectural magazines, architectural digests, and they, or even our local Sunday paper will have an architect section every now and then, and they will put forward you know, their idea of beauty in, in a home design. And do you ever look at those pages and go, who would want to live there? It's like all angles and cold and nothing is out of place. I'm always reminded the archetype of the, or the ultimate of this, I don't know if you know this movie, Woody Allen in Sleeper, where he's trying to sit on a chair that's just basically an S-shaped piece of wire. You know, and this is, but it's, that's kind of what these places look like. You wouldn't actually want to sit. It's all about what they look like. It's not about, are they comfortable? Or then sometimes there's the other end where it's so overblown and chintzed up and, you know, tchotchkes everywhere. It's like you'd just be overwhelmed every time you walked into the room. It, it's all about what it looks like and not what it's actually like to be and live and be comfortable in those situations. So to really look at the ways we get obsessed by seeing. Uh, this is apparently a true story from the great uh, human observer, one of my favorites, Dave Barry. Uh, if you know Dave Barry, he's a humor columnist who lives down in Florida in Miami, where he says they have the worst drivers. I think everywhere thinks they have the worst drivers, but I wouldn't be surprised there are some reasons why Miami might have very bad drivers. So he says, I've seen bad drivers before, Nevertheless, I was surprised by the driver on the interstate the other night. I heard him before I saw him because his car had one of those extremely powerful sound systems in which the bass notes sound like nuclear devices being detonated in rhythm. So I looked in the mirror and saw a large convertible with the top down overtaking me at maybe 600 miles per hour. I would have tried to get out of his path but there was no way to know what his path was, since he was weaving back and forth across five lanes. Fortunately, he missed me, and as he went past, I got a clear view of why he was driving so erratically. He was watching a music video. He was watching 
it on a video screen that had been installed where the sun visor usually goes, right in front of his face, blocking his view of the road. Now, I don't want to sound like an old FUD, but this seems to me to be just a tad hazardous. I distinctly recall learning in driver's education class that to operate a car, you need to be able to see where the car is going in case the need should arise to steer. <laughs> well, we've just got to think that what is going on with this obsession to see these forms, in this case of a music video, but as I said, these days, you can watch anything on anything, you know, on your cell phone, on your iPhone, on your iPod, you know, watch Lawrence of Arabia on a two-inch screen, watch your latest TV shows, take them with you, have them on the car, on the train, on the bus. It's all about this visual field and getting obsessed in it because people are lost in that. Here we have the option to see a different way of relating and this is just the first of the, the sense doors. You know, obviously, you can go through this practice with all of them. But to see also how it's possible to wake up the other senses so we're not so just in sight, but to hear the sound of the wind in the trees, to taste a grapefruit, not getting caught in it in the sense of a fetter arising, but really being present for it, seeing how actually the fetter arising doesn't allow us to truly experience what's happening because we're distorting it through that very nature of that relationship. So it's why on retreats we often talk about guarding the sense doors. So there is a sense of the potential for being lost, getting caught up, especially through sights. It's the main triggering we have for um, aversion, judgment, you know, it can come through sound, but a lot of it is through sight. Just being a little cautious about that. Because the practice goes on to ask us to notice the arising of the unarisen feta. So it's the same kind of formulation. So the feta hasn't arisen, and you notice it arising. And then the abandoning of that arisen feta. So again, the same process. You notice how when you're, you're not mindful, when there's just this unconscious moving out or pushing away, we get, we get caught, we get stuck, and what it takes to let that go. So in, these, in this, whole this whole area of practice, it really is talking about the four wise efforts in relationship to our experience. And you could see this, just this one section of the fourth foundation of mindfulness could be describing our whole practice. Something arises, noticing where we get caught, letting it go over and over again. So we've been asked to practice with the hindrances, with the aggregates, with the six sense spaces. And that's, again, setting a little bit of the stage for then practicing with the seven, foundation, seven factors of enlightenment. Often on a retreat, we'll give a whole talk on um, these qualities of mind because they really are um, the, the qualities, the factors that have to be cultivated and brought into balance for awakening to happen. There are three arousing factors and three calming factors, and mindfulness is the balancing, the, the original, the, the beginning factor, and the one that has to uh, flow through all. So there's mindfulness and then investigation, energy and rapture or pity, 
and then the calming factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And again, a practice for each one of these. It begins in the sutta by saying, I'll start just with mindfulness. We notice that mindfulness is present or not present. Again, this is really central to our practice, to notice whether mindfulness is present or not present. And then how there is comes to be the arising of unarisen mindfulness. And how arisen mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development. So the first two, though very essential, are kind of obvious, mindful or not mindful. But the third one, the arising of unarisen mindfulness, for me is a little more interesting because people always ask, why do I get lost or how do I get lost? I think that's fairly obvious. We get caught in the hindrances, we get the fetters arise in whatever way. But how do we wake up? How does there come to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness factor? That's the interesting question. Because if we can figure that out, we can become mindful. And once we become mindful, all kinds of choices open up for us. Unfortunately, there isn't an on switch. There isn't an easy answer. But obviously, what we're doing here is training to have more arisen moments of unarisen mindfulness, because being mindful is that very training. The more moments of mindfulness you have, the more it's likely that, in fu that future moments will contain mindfulness. This is really so central. So we're really training the mind to be mindful. And as we recognize that, it doesn't matter what we're aware of. It's the training that's important. It's the training the mind to be mindful. Because that we can take with us when we leave the retreat. We can't take the experiences or the concentration or even the insights unless they've really shifted us in some way. But the trained mind we can tra take with us. And there's this great saying, I, I don't know where it came, who, who made it up, but enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident prone. Mm -hmm. And it's really that we are setting the seeds here for our awakening just through this consecutive moments of training to be mindful. And, and the fourth step, how arisen mindfulness comes to fulfillment by development. How ar and it goes through all the other factors, how arisen rapture comes to perfection by development. This is really stepping back and seeing the big picture of our practice and the path, seeing what it is we need to do to encourage these beautiful factors to arise and then develop, to re see how we're a participant in this process. They're not random accidents that just come out of nowhere. We have to provide the conditions for these experiences to come to be. And so we see in our practice the unfolding of the path. We see these factors being developed. We need to recognize these wholesome factors as, we're, as they're being developed. And to see the seven factors of awakening, not just of some theoretical list, but actually practices. We can practice to bring energy. We can practice to bring rapture or tranquility or equanimity. That they're actually things, they're verbs that we do 
not some thing to get that's outside of ourselves. And once we look in that big picture, it can really, and we see our practice unfolding in this way, see that we're doing this, it can bring a lot of faith and a willingness to keep practicing, perseverance. And so we start to notice the beautiful qualities in themselves. Like uh, someone said the other day, mindfulness is inherently satisfying. As we notice that, it, it creates the conditions for more mindfulness to be present. And we're willing to stay with the difficulties because we have that verified experience ourselves. The last of the practices is in some ways the most interesting. We're asked to actually practice with the Four Noble Truths. It's not just a philosophy. You don't write them down and stick them in a card in your pocket and then you're a card-carrying Buddhist because you know the Four Noble Truths. They're practices. And when we practice with them, we see these truths in our experience actually notice them in the same way we'd notice a hindrance or a factor of enlightenment or a moment of mindfulness. We see them at work. And like I experience when, we, when I notice the Vedna of something I mentioned before, it's like recognizing the truth of experience. There can be that either aha moment, that connection, or that letting go that comes from seeing in this clear way. So that Practice is the practitioner understands as it actually is, this is suffering. It may sometimes seem like this retreat center is kind of a dukkha factory, you know, that what, what happens on retreat is we experience a lot of suffering. It's obviously not the intention, but there is something profound about being willing to recognize suffering when you experience it. And so many of you have talked about this, the, the actual relief that can come by seeing the suffering on a, on a very personal level, but also in, a, in an impersonal way, the conditioned nature of suffering. And also seeing very clearly how we usually create our own suffering. And it's only by willing to, to be willing to see the nature of suffering that we see that added subtlety of how often we create our own suffering. And then the practitioner knows this is the origin of suffering. Craving, clinging, delusion. This is how I'm getting caught in this. Someone said the other day, I just see grasping everywhere. You know, once you start to look, you see how ubiquitous it is. And from that very seeing, come to see the end of suffering. This is a cessation of suffering. Now, usually in the suttas, when they talk about the cessation of suffering, they're talking about really the ending of suffering, uprooting all of the defilements and coming to the end of suffering. But I think for us as practitioners, it's really important to recognize what we call temporary Nibbana. Ajahn Buddhadasa has this great little booklet he calls Nibbana for Everyone. And he talks about temporary Nibbana, which is just this momentary cooling this momentary letting go, this momentary peace that we have all experienced. And I know that because he says, and I trust him, if we hadn't, we'd all be crazy. 
We've all had it, and hopefully on this retreat we've had it more than most people would have. Moments of letting go, moments of clear seeing, moments of stillness, moments of acceptance. We've all seen the end of suffering, and therefore we know that it's possible to end suffering because we've directly experienced it. And so this is what this is, the fourth foundation is asking us to look at in our experience, to notice this is the end of suffering. This is the ending of this particular round of clinging or, constrict, or constriction or doubt or fear. We come into that moment. And so from that place, we, we, we find faith and confidence so that when we get caught again, it's a reference point. We know that this particular swirl or manifestation of the hindrances or the defilements is a temporary conditioned arising because we've seen previously that it ends, that it's not permanent, that it isn't who we are. So we know that for ourselves. And then we know the end, the path to the end of suffering. And again, it's interesting to look at the Eightfold Path, that really complex set of teachings, the eight factors, as something we're experiencing moment to moment. But there is a way in which we're doing the Eightfold Path all the time here on this retreat. It begins with wise understanding or or right view. That's what we're being steeped in here all the time, turning our mind to the Dhamma, becoming in alignment with the Dhamma. Wise intention, those intentions of renunciation, harmlessness, and goodwill. We're practicing all the time. Mightn't be perfect, but we're practicing them. Wise speech, we're in the refuge of noble silence. Some days hence, we'll have more opportunity to practice wise speech. It is a practice. It's the biggest practice we can, one of the biggest practices we can take up as we engage back in daily life. But here we've been practicing wise speech, often not so wise in our internal monologues of judging and criticizing, but the intention has always been there to come more into a sense of kindness and harmony. And one of our friends, Kamala Masters, who often teaches here, tells this story of going to her teacher, Upandita, and reporting that she was having lots of thinking. And he just said, Stop that. This is a silent retreat. So if that helps, just stop it. This is a silent retreat. It's a practice. But really, we've carried that intention through this retreat. The next factor, wise action, we've been living with the precepts, really clearly intending to follow them day after day. Wise livelihood. This is considered by the Buddha to be the wisest form of livelihood, to be a practitioner. To, be, uh, to live the renunciate life like we've been doing. The four wise efforts. Again, as I hope you've seen through this talk tonight, this is what you've been doing. You've been abandoning, letting go of the tormented states of mind and cultivating these beautiful states of mind of goodwill and compassion and equanimity and, and tranquility. And then wise mindfulness, hopefully you've had a moment or two on the retreat, and concentration, the last path factor. You have been practicing the Eightfold Path, so you can say this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. If you've had a moment of freedom here, it's by practicing the Eightfold Path that it's come about. 
So these are the practices of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. To really see the intent is to integrate the Buddha's teachings into our direct experience, to see the Dhamma in the Dhammas, as I said in the beginning. It's an encouragement to investigation in this direct way that I spoke about earlier, not to get lost in thought, to to really think a lot about things, but to come into the moment and see clearly what's happening, to see why we get caught and how we can let go. I really hope you get from this that mindfulness practice isn't just a passive sitting like a blob while waves of aversion and confusion and wanting and lust pass over you. You can try that, but it's a difficult way to practice. The Buddha is asking us to get engaged in our experience, to understand it, and to really see how and why we get caught and how we can let go, and to see that over and over again in all of these different ways. And to use wisdom and compassion as we engage in that process, to use skillful means. So we're doing this all the time. Anytime we let go of the unwholesome, anytime we cultivate the wholesome, we're practicing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So you're probably doing much more than you might have thought you were. You're actually doing it. But as I emphasized at the beginning, you don't need to remember this, to try and remember all these steps or these processes. It's really the big picture. Where do I get caught? What was going on in that moment before, those few moments before? How can I engage skillfully with that and find freedom or peace or letting go right here and right now, come into acceptance? And what's also interesting about the fourth foundation is it's, it's in, in and of itself, it's a progression laid upon the progression of the other foundations. It's just an amazing set of teachings. There's a developmental nature in the first three foundations, but in this foundation, it's also developmental. It begins with the hindrances. So as we sit down and pay attention to the breath and the body and the mind, what do we notice? The hindrances. It tells us how to practice skillfully with those. So we work skillfully with the hindrances. They begin to reduce a little as our mindfulness and concentration builds through practicing the other three foundations. Then we're directed to know our experience in this objective, um, clear way through the lens of the aggregates and the six sense spaces. So we see the arising and passing of the aggregates. We see where we get caught through the six sense doors. And through that clear seeing, that tendency to get caught, that confusion, that doubt, starts to diminish. The mind gets clearer and stiller. Out of that place of more equanimity, more stability, we turn to the seven factors. And they just naturally start to develop and arise. As they come into balance, the mind can turn directly to freedom, to the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering. And of course, there is a progression that doesn't mean it happens step by step. There's a flow and a, a movement to this that's woven all throughout our practice. But you can just see the amazing logic of this series of practices. And the more I look at this, you know, even reading the sutta that I've read over and over again, 
I just get in awe of the Buddha's mind. I mean, he didn't have Wikipedia and the internet to reference things. He didn't have a relational database to keep track of all of these things he was putting together. But it makes so much sense. It's so logical and so powerful and so always pointing to finding freedom again and again through our own direct experience. And this is how he ends the sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness. Bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected for her, either final knowledge here and now, basically full liberation, but if there is any trace of clinging left, non-return. So it's basically full or close to full enlightenment. Then he goes on, let alone seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, one of two fruits, same thing. Let alone one year, bhikkhus, if anyone should practice for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, let alone half a month, bhikkhus, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for her, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it was with reference to this that it was said, because this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus, bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. We have seven days left. <laughs> Go for it. We often think we should advertise enlightenment guaranteed in seven days. All you have to do is be mindful all seven days. Here's your opportunity. Let's just sit together for a moment. to the Dhamma.